Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the Week on Wednesday CrossPod with Socially Democratic. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me is the lovely, the gorgeous, the politically attuned Stephen Donnelly from Socially Democratic and Dunn Street and of course the wonderful Always cheering in the background, <laughs> best-selling author of Q and On and On, Van Batham. How are we, Stephen and Van? That was an excellent intro, and I was wondering if you were going to do that leading lead joke, and you did. That was great. I was very, very impressed by that. We like um, to give our audience a sense of comfort and familiarity, Stephen, and, you know, just to the Week on Wednesday audience, Stephen Donnelly and I have been friends for, oh, about 400 years. I think our friendship slightly predates the invention of the printing press, so how wonderful it is for us to be just blessed with this experiment in modern technology. It's, it's great to join you both. Um, yes, uh, Van and I, you, you and I go back to a campaign era where people use risographs. Oh, yeah. Wow. I remember the risograph. Do you know what a risograph is, Ben? I, I, I've heard tales of this thing <laughs> that lurked in the back rooms of student unions and union offices. Yes, it was quite the privilege to get access to a risograph. You knew you'd really made the power elite of student hackdom if you had access to the risograph. Absolutely. When David Finney was a... Senator, we had a choice of different things that you can order from the parliamentary services, photocopiers and all sorts of stuff. He he ordered a risograph and I was like, David, I don't think anyone uses them anymore. And he said, no, no, get one of them. Everyone wants a risograph. And I went, sure. Everyone wants a risograph. There is a line I never thought I would hear. Yeah, whereas at the University of Wollongong, somewhat resource restricted back in the day, we just did things in semaphore code and with pigeons. <laughs> well, Very cozy. It's it's uh, it's wonderful that we can all come together online now in the modern era where the mice run the messages across the copper wire <laughs> because, of course, we have now reached the midway point of election 2022. And really, I can't think of a better pair of people to discuss where this election is up to than with yourself, Stephen, and you, Van, who have seen it all before going all the way back to risographs, which I got to say, Stephen, I'm a little disturbed by how recent the risograph still is, but like, what are we, what are we thinking? What are we feeling about the election so far? Stephen, I I, want to get your thoughts because, you know, you're of all of us, you're the one who's most recently held a publicly elected office. Tell us what's going on. Where are we at with Ozpol 2022? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because I've sort of spent a bit of time reaching out to folk who are on the campaign and or tangentially involved in local campaigns just to try and get a sense of where we think we are because this is my I think this is my first campaign out of a national cycle so it's kind of weird being on the outside looking in to try and get a sense of where we are and I sort of have to try and use my own personal antenna whilst also just talking to folks Mm -hmm. Uh, it's you know it's a six-week campaign it's traditionally a little bit longer than a normal traditional 33-day campaign um, so it's going to be a bit more drawn out. Um, I think that pre-poll starts on Monday, so things are going to start to change. But I guess at this point, at the halfway point, I would be happy where Labor is right now. I think I know things started off a little bit rocky in that first week, and then I thought the second week things just started to settle down. I thought last week was a really good week for Labor um, and a bad week for the coalition. Um, we need more of those going into the next three weeks because election day essentially is a three-week proposition and it begins when pre-poll opens and that's when people start voting and we've seen all this um, data that tells us in each election cycle more and more people are taking full advantage of that early voting opportunity. 
So the core messages that Labor are going to communicate over this next three-week period are going to be critically important to Labor if they are to win the election and form government on the 21st of May. I pre-poll and as we all know, it's because I get a bit emotional at uh, the actual booth and uh, full acknowledgement to everybody who's ever tried to calm me down at a booth when some rando has recognised me and attempted to pick a fight. I think you have done, friends, a great service to the to the hostile randos of the world by ensuring that I stay away from that particular process so randos don't get dismembered. Well, it is going to be interesting, this pro poll, uh, Stephen, because you, you bring it up and, Van, your point is a good one, right? <laughs> it, or, or tangential as it may be, um, in that we're going to see more people pre-polling, which probably means more on-the-ground election activity around pre-poll centres. I mean, we've seen that already in recent elections, and certainly if you think about all of the activity that's happened in overseas elections where there's been some pre-polling, the, the, the really, as you say, Stephen, election day is now a three-week uh, process rather than a single-day event. So, you know, are we are we... In danger, or Van, do you think that you know media narratives have cemented what's going to happen already, or do you think there's still a lot to be played for? Well, look, obviously there's a lot to be played for because we know that 20% of people make up their minds on the day. Like that's just established fact in Australian politics now. I think pre-poll is interesting because pre-poll is usually when people who have already made up their minds go to vote, let the decisions be made and off you go. I think that there are some interesting questions raised by the popularity of pre-poll and it's about whether you need the resources of hand-routers and posters and flyers and core flutes and all of those things. If you're catering to an electorate who've already made up their minds, how important is that sort of campaign mobilisation effort, I think that's an interesting question. But I also think that there's a potential risk with the duration of pre-poll, and we've seen this in various contexts in the United States in particular, where pre-poll opens and then there's a what they call in in America a November surprise, which is when a scandal like the um, Hillary Clinton email WikiLeaks scandal happens at a point where pre-poll is already open and it's used by the campaign that's launched the scandal to find people who've already voted and get them to say, if I had have known this, I wouldn't have voted for her, and to use the sort of buyer's remorse of people who've already voted to launch a scandal that can be quite powerful during an election cycle. And certainly given the impact of disinformation campaigns on the Australian electorate in 2019 when we saw the insane things that were said about Bill Shorten and his family, which were very powerful, very awful and very untrue, as well as the scaremongering around the death tax, which did not exist. That kind of campaigning can be really volatile during a pre-poll period. So, Stephen, I want to bring you in here because obviously your, your, you know, machinery of campaigning experience, you'll have seen some of these effects, you'll, you'll, you'll know how some of this works. Is, is, there a, is there a danger in this pre-poll period with the way media covers the election that it could, could I guess, shift the very dynamics of, 
of the election or is media now so out of touch that actually people will rely on their networks and social media and independent media like Socially Democratic and The Week on Wednesday to, to make up their mind? Um, solid plug there. Yeah. Look, I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Um, certainly once we've hit pre-poll, the, we need to treat it as if the the election is live. It's happening right now. People are going in and casting their uh, their ballots. And just to back up Van's point, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there has been so much study done by the Australian Electoral Study that shows that um, a certain percentage of voters make up their minds when they go into vote. And that number has held up consistently over a long period of time through various election cycles, no matter what's been happening in terms of the way that we campaign. So there are certainly constraints that are placed upon campaigns because people are voting and we have to be live to that. And the things that Van just mentioned certainly were massive concerns uh, for a campaign uh, during the 2019 uh, election. But there, are, there also presents opportunities as well. And so one of the things that certainly from my own experience in the Victorian state election campaigns that we ran in 2014 and 2018 was seeing this as an opportunity to, I guess, back end a lot of our um, um, ad buy, both on um, mainstream television, but also through digital channels as well. Um, and going into the first weekend, uh, so the weekend leading into pre-poll, starting to really lift your ad buy and get to that saturation point. So you are getting your core messages out, both your positive and your contrast message against your opponent. Um, early, so it's clear in the minds when people go into vote in that pre-poll situation, as opposed to what we traditionally saw when um, when postal voting was a small percentage of voters, or early voting was a small mm-hmm. percentage mm-hmm. of voters. That last sort of weekend and week leading into before the, the blackout came in, that's when the big media dump would happen. What also we see from a from our volunteer mobilisation perspective in a field program, I love that is, term, volunteer mobilisation program. We, yeah, we, we really, you know, our field organizers and our volunteer leaders and our volunteers, once, you know, we're leading to that, we'll have a big weekend this weekend just to sort of energize folk and say, hey, people are starting to vote now. So the conversations that you have with your neighbors are critical. And the conversations that we have from this moment on all the way up until uh, election day are so much more critical. So the goals that we set for our local campaigns in terms of the output really start to ramp up in this final three weeks. This is basically, it is grand final day, but uh, stretched out over a 20-day period. That is, a, that is a long grand final. Can I just say I also love the term contrast messages. That is such a good term. I'm going to use that. Yeah, week on Wednesday audiences absolutely love learning all the hack terminology to show off at parties and I put myself in that audience, contrast messaging. That's right. I love it. We don't do negative ads, we do contrast messages. <laughs> But I think it's a good point. It's a good point. It's a three week. It's a three week grand final, and you know we always like to say to people, you know, when you listen to a podcast, if you if you agree with the messages or if you think the issues are worth talking about, talk to your friends about them. Get them to listen to the podcast. Get you know get them to talk to people about it. And I guess with the political cycle that we're in, this next three weeks is much the same, much the same message we need to be delivering. But you know, I'm I'm interested in in how, you know, if the ads are going to start to really ramp up over this weekend and we're going to see this three-week grand final, you know, Anthony Albanese was obviously in isolation um, and, you know, as you say, Stephen, that was quite a good week for Labor. Now he's back on the campaign trail. Is Labor, you know, still having a good week uh, or do we feel that there's going to be another shift when the ads start to roll out that, that, 
takes this momentum. Certainly, I'm feeling the momentum of, of a Labor campaign that, that maybe sucks the wind out of the sails. I think coming, first of all, with Elbow going into isolation, that was such a unique experience in a political campaign. Um, this is the first time we've had a post-COVID election, and um, if you were to run a bet on which leader would get um, COVID, um, you know, I think that it would be um, it, there would be pretty big odds to think that that actually would happen. And the fact that it happened to to in this campaign and it happened to Elbow to our guy was like, oh, okay, right. What do we, you know, what do we do about this? And I thought our, the our way- guy's the one who like shakes everybody's hands, right? So of course he's got more exposure, whereas the other guy is photographed leading starving cattle through a showground. So it's it's not it's not mad cow disease. It's COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, That's what happens when you want to talk to people. Yeah, if you've been on the internet, you know the fear is, or uh, hope, depending on what kind of personality type you have, is that Scott Morrison will develop salmonella based on his treatment of uh, raw and undercooked meats. Oh, yeah, bad curry, bad curry. But yeah, please, can where where is it at? Where is that? So I think that him coming out of uh, COVID, having the launch on the weekend, I thought the launch was uh, was a just a great moment to to pause uh, and frame Labor's pitch for the final three weeks. And I thought, thought it went really, really well. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on it as well. And I think it set us up for this next week. And so far, I think the week's been great, but you're right. I think we're, I think we're all kind of looking and waiting for this deluge of um, of, 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 of advertising, both um, in, in the paid media space, but also in the air, you know, a bit of earned media. I mean, how many more big drops are we going to get from both campaigns? I mean, have we seen yeah. everything from both campaigns? Um, the Libs will do their launch at some point as well. Plus we've got two debates to come along. Not that many people watch them, but it certainly does continue to frame the narrative. If someone has a bad performance, then that kind of sets the cycle for three or four days after that. And that eventually kind of feeds into voter land. Um, and to answer your point, uh, your question earlier, uh, Ben, about then how much to be worried about the way that the, the media can um, spin a narrative and shape a debate. Certainly, I think it's a lot less than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, a good example of it in Victoria, but also in Queensland as well at a state election level. Um, the Murdoch press threw everything at the Labor candidates and Labor campaigns in those state elections. And we saw resounding victories for Labor. Now, if that had happened, like well, I remember when I was a young bloke going through high school, you know, whatever happened on the front page of the Herald Sun, that kind of dictated what was going to be in the outcome of the election. Um, and we, I think people used to fear what was in the front page of the Herald Sun. Yeah. No one does that anymore. No one, well, certainly as a, I don't care what's in the front page of the Herald Sun anymore. I don't really care about what Murdoch's doing because their impact is nowhere near as, as, as effective as it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago because the fragmentation of, of media into this, um, you know, we've got social media, um, we've got digital streaming services. We're not getting TV advertising anymore. We're not really reading newspapers anymore. We're seeking out our media and so many different sources, podcasts and 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 uh, and blogs and the like. So it's just not cutting through as much as it used to. So I would be less worried about it. But at the same time, we need to make sure that labor is consistent with its messaging across all of those media platforms, including the conversations that volunteers are having on the phones and the doors in those targeted seats. Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think Labor's launch was really like a really strong launch, some really good key lines about all of that. And, of course, Van, you're going to be doing some pre- and post-debate work for the next debate because we all saw how Sky 
basically subjected the Australian debate viewing public to 35 minutes of... Of former Liberal staffers <laughs> like Chris Kenny and Peter Credlin. Like it was just, and then another 40 minutes at the end when they were struggling to count to 100. Um, it's, I've never seen so, such a large group of people take so long to count so few votes. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, um, Van, you know, you're going to be doing some work with the Australian Union's uh, team around this, right, to try and, I guess, provide people a different uh, outlook on actually what was said and done in the media. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we are dealing with the reality that not only the, the media model has definitely changed in some ways, it, you know, there is a, a rabidness to the conservative media, media and a, a self-identified rabid, like rabidness to that as well. I mean, it's interesting to hear on Sky, Peter Credlin, it's not like she's not pretending to be a liberal. I actually find it quite refreshing. You know, she was talking the other day, I think it was around the debate coverage, that there were seats that were liberal by right. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. like how dare voters get in the way of what the Liberal Party earned. And in a way it was sort of like a refreshing admission of a born to rule, you know, Tory attitude, and much better than the pretend neutrality that, as you know, drives me completely, completely bonkers. But also, I mean, you had James Campbell, who's the political editor of the Herald Sun, um, refer to the Liberal Party and himself with the royal we on Insiders on his performance the other yeah. day about how we have to get our campaign together. I also thought that was kind of refreshing. I mean, they own it. And conservatives have always been really good at this. Like they front the fundraisers, they put the blue T-shirt on, they do the photos and the rest of it, and that gives them a certain cultural heft. And everybody knows cultural power and cultural heft is definitely my wheelhouse so many wheels so many houses well, is, it, is it steve bannon who says politics flows down from culture ben has obviously read my best-selling book q anon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults available as a paperback ebook and audiobook yeah it's it's called the breitbart doctrine so andrew breitbart was a sort of maverick american conservative who lived by this idea that politics does flow downstream from culture and the the lessons that you want people to learn politically you have to teach them culturally that's why he created breitbart magazine which by the way if you you're a remotely left-wing person and check it out online, it is like a different world. Like it is literally like dispatches from space, heroes and villains you've never heard of, principles that you don't agree with, but pushed with, you know, like enormous amounts of energy by the right-wing political operation that's behind it. And you can look at things like um, Magaland and Trump world in the United States, the rallies, the hats, the costumes, the rest of it, that's politics flowing downstream from culture and creating a community that people culturally identify with. That being said, you know, not everybody wants to be part of the same community. We're not yeah. mindless imbibers of the dominant culture. There's always a counterculture. And certainly, um, you know, my reaction and your reaction to watching the debate on Sky, visiting a strange country where they do things differently, uh, was going, yeah, this is not this is not how we want to take this particular kind of information. This is not the context for us. So I was approached uh, with Francis Leach, who some of you may remember from Triple J's glory days um, and the three hours of power, who's, of course, experienced uh, media professional. And, and on the job. Uh, on the job podcast as well. Um, he's quite the comrade, our Francis. And so Francis and I are going to do uh, a live broadcast through uh, Twitch, Facebook Live, you know, wherever you get your social media, and we're going to cocoon the leaders' debate on Sunday as an experiment, do it from the fancy desk with the backdrop and the whole thing, and we're going to call 
uh, we're going to call the debate, we're going to bookend yeah. it and obviously live tweet through it and certainly we'd encourage all, all comrades to get online and maybe take the, the debate that way if, uh, you know, it's, if you have a bad taste left in your mouth from being forced to watch even 10 seconds of Paul Murray, believe me, he probably shares um, your view and you can get Francis and me. But yeah, And I think it's interesting, you know, and I think from the perspective of, we know right-wing media wears its colours on its sleeve, it nails its colours to the mast, use whatever kind of uh, glib metaphor you like. But, you know, so much of what we would call independent or left-wing media uh, really almost seems to retreat when it comes to elections. So to your point, Stephen, you know, we saw the double-page spread in the Herald Sun, which was just an ad for Josh Frydenberg, and on the front page, right, whereas you know the the sort of left of center news outlets kind of retreat back into the shell almost as if they need to be seen to be so much more impartial by actually being harder on labor in elections yeah i often i used to have that view as well but it's starting to change i'm wondering now that you know we we always sort of thought that the fairfax media was either fiercely independent or leaning center left and now I'm starting to wonder if they if that if they ever were that. Um, maybe there were certainly a number of journalists that worked at that masthead that did have centre left leanings and tried to hide it in their in their writing and just try to do the right thing as a journalist to their practice. But sometimes I actually wonder if the Fairfax media is sort of a a, a wet liberal kind of Hamer esque type of. Um, uh, paper, um, talking about, you know, former Victorian premiers, that kind of older traditional liberal style attitude towards the way that uh, Australia should be. And so therefore, you know, they're disappointed um, when the Tories act out and sort of shift to the right uh, and don't behave the way that they think the, 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 the Liberal Party should be. And we saw that a lot with um, when Malcolm Turnbull was yeah. Prime Minister. They were so disappointed in Malcolm. Oh, we just thought Malcolm was going to be so much better than that, you know? Because I think they thought Malcolm just fit within that beautiful world that they longed to see again, harping back to the 60s and 70s. So when we find sort of reform agenda labor leaders, whether they be federal or state, there's a mistrust or a distrust, sorry, of, of those and a suspicion of those labor leaders and that we can't, that we simply can't govern. We're not very good at it. So when we are good at it, then they just kind of want to work out ways in which they can undercut it. Darling, so we are it, from the servant classes. I mean, can you imagine? What if yeah. working people had the right to vote? Absolutely. Like they're, they're just these inner city elitist spivs that, you know, I just don't think that they ever were Labor people or centre-left people anyway, and I don't think they ever want us to survive, uh, succeed. I think they were happy when we had a crack. Oh, good on them, you yeah. know. Tally-ho, good. good job. You almost got there. Good to see the working class get out of the muck for a little while at a least. A bit of self-improvement would go a long way to better service. <laughs> I mean, I genuinely, I mean, Stephen, you and I are the same age. And like, I certainly remember that attitude in my youth. And and I even remember, you know, the discussion around the Hawke election. We were living in the North Shore, uh, on the North Shore of Sydney at the time. I'd like to point out in the flat behind the RSL where my dad worked, yeah, not yeah. exactly the typical North Shore experience. But you can imagine like our our neighbours were literally horrified that Bob Hawke was even a contender like, and it was genu- genuinely couched in that uppity servant kind of 
tone. And I think that does come through. I mean, I work in the media and I love my colleagues and I think journalists have a a very, like a, a job that most people are pretty ungrateful for them doing, which is unfortunate. And I can tell you now the average Australian journalist is doing eight times the workload for slightly less money comparatively than they were doing 10 years ago. They are exhausting places to work. The demands to be all things to all people are really exhausting. And not to mention journalists don't get a lot of direction over what kind of editorial line they can take. You know, everybody answers to someone, particularly in corporate media, and we all know that, you know, there is political influence that's brought to bear on the ABC. That is an established mm, fact. Mm, mm. And, I mean, and that's the reality. I think that there's a there are some healthy media filters that Australians have developed. I don't think there's anything wrong with people admitting their political beliefs. In fact, I think that's quite healthy. I yeah. find it a lot easier to watch Peter Credlin knowing that she will be very clear about where she's coming from because I trust myself. I'm smart enough to know what the truth is under her perspective. And I think that can be quite useful, but I, I just want to do a shout out to young Addison who we talked about in the show a couple of weeks ago, who was the young activist who gate crashed the party that Scott Morrison was the drinks that Scott Morrison was oh, having hosting. for the media yeah, yeah. at the um, at the Nepean Rowing Club. I think they were all at, and I think so many people were shocked that you know there were these drinks going on that were these sort of closed events between the prime minister and his press pack, and that that sort of inspired quite a lot of criticism. And I think in the wake of that, there's actually been a better conversation, like a, a stronger. Um, inclination towards scrutiny. Morrison's faced some very difficult questions recently that I don't think he really was at the beginning of the campaign. And I want to I want to pick up on that point because at the start of the campaign, the very first, I think it was the very first day of the campaign, we had the gotcha moments, and you know the the all of the sort of focus and scrutiny seemed to be on um, uh, on elbow and on labour, and really around that time of the. Uh, Morrison hosting drinks and a bit of a change in the conversation. Um, there has been more focus on Morrison and some of his policies and really what he stands for. And at the moment, his campaign basically boils down to, look, things aren't great, but they'll be much worse under Labor. And we're not Labor, so vote for us. I mean, this seems like a bizarre strategy. And we've seen even with Elbow in isolation, we've seen Jim Chalmers step up. We've seen um, Penny Wong step up. We've seen Jason Clare. Jason Clare. And I think that was a, a great boon to the Labor campaign. And I heard Labor strategists saying that the great thing about having Elbow in isolation was that Labor got to platform other people who speak to different communities, who have different purchase on different parts of the electorate, and it was a coordinated team and it it gave Labor a brand of, you know, we are a team. There is more than one of us. Power is not all concentrated in one person. We have this variety of people who can speak to you. And I think Jason Clare is a really good example. You know, he's quite well known as a federal MP for New South Wales. You know, he's been Labor's housing spokesperson, very involved in sort of post-disaster recovery and getting issues into the paper. But I think, you know, like most people in shadow cabinet, you can struggle to get that kind of national audience. Albo being sick really gave Jason Clare time to shine. You know, he's a great speaker because he's had the housing portfolio. He's very close Mm. to, you know, activities on the ground. And I think that was a, that was actually an unexpected gift. And Stephen, do you think 
that conversely that that added scrutiny to Morrison because some of the things that have started to come out about his candidates, about the views of his ministers. I mean, this is the first campaign I can remember where you know the the leader, the leader of the government, has had to announce who their health minister will be because the health minister is quitting during a pandemic, uh, and the person they've picked is someone who quite frankly, has an incredibly controversial backlog of fairly awful statements, right? So has has this period actually meant that Morrison's facing greater scrutiny? The media has kind of gone, well, you, you know, you're the leader of the party. We're going to focus on you. We don't know so much about the Labor spokespeople. We'll give them some airtime to explain themselves. But we've had you now as Prime Minister for, you know, more than three years. We're not going to give you an easy time. Yeah, I think so. I think that um, starting off in that first week, and the you know the starter's gun is fired, and both candidates roll out and start doing their th- their thing. The media right away are looking for what are we going to write about, or what are we going to what pictures are we going to show on TV each night, um, and then elbow unfortunately has that trip trip up and then right away they've gone great, we've got something to talk about, and because nothing else is going on, that rolled out for two or three more days when really, you know, it could have been on the news that night and then we could have moved on. But because nothing else was happening, yeah. the be- the, you know, you've got to feed the beast. Um, Labor managed to sort of batten down the hatches, fight through that, and then start to steady the ship. And then I think to uh, Van's point, um, when Elbow went into isolation and people like Penny and Jim Chalmers uh, and, uh, and Jason Clare stepped up, they did a great job and they also did a great job of starting to point the finger back at Scott Morrison and the failings of both his leadership and the people that are in his team. And that press conference that Jason Clare did, and there's a there's like a, a minute 10 sort of roll of um, concise shooting down of Scott Morrison and his government over the past eight years that I, I, I listened to it. I watched it and listened to it. And I said, damn it, just grab that audio and get some B-roll of Scott Morrison, you know, making a fool of himself in public, trying to shake people's hands and walking away from press conferences. And there's your ad because yeah. that just sums up the last eight years of Scott Morrison. And so after, after doing such great press conferences there, I, I, I think that the, 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 the media beast was fed. They were happy with that. They're going, okay, this is good. All right. I like this. And then they said, well, let's wander over and see what Scott's doing these days. Turns out things in Scott's world isn't that great because he's completely stuffed up the Solomon Islands scenario under his watch when he talks and he's been talking up the frame of who do you trust on national security yeah. and they've just let China go yeah, do not a deal. You. <laughs> Absolutely not you. Land war in Europe, I'm not feeling confident about the Morrison leadership, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Next minute, the interest rates are about to go up because inflation has gone through the roof under your watch in which you have been telling us all that you're the best to manage the economy. So the two areas that he's actually running on, he's just got things blowing up in his face. And so the media have gone, right, okay, how are you going to deal with this? And it's continuing on into this week. And I think that Labor should just keep pressing that home for as long as they possibly can, because the, the, the longer that Morrison tries to deflect, the media will want to be fed on that. And I think that we just need to keep our guns focused on on uh, on Scott Morrison and the failures of what he has um, done over the course of these last eight years and what's happening right now. Well, I, I want to talk about that because there was there's been a lot of um, 
interesting discussion um, around economic management, right? And uh, I want to give a shout out here to Australian unions. Uh, we always say on our podcast, you know, the, there are three ways wages go up. One, be a global superstar in sport or in rock and roll. If you can't do that, like most of us, uh, you need government policy that helps drive wage increases uh, and improves the bargaining power of unions. And being a member of a union is how you get uh, wages increased in the workplace. Uh, we know union members get paid more. So join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's the link where you can join. And Australian unions have been putting out these papers, this research, and one of the things that they've put out is that if if wages had kept pace with productivity since 2013, the average worker would be $10,000 better off. I mean, that's a huge, huge improvement on where people find themselves now that you know really is just saying, well, if we got the wages we should have got, and so we've now sort of got this conversation where Morrison's saying, well, I'm better on economic management, but actually the stats are starting to show not really. Like, no, not if, at all. If economic management is about people and households and you know our standards of living, is Scott Morrison actually delivering on that there? Well, I mean, this is the thing. You know, Scott Morrison is economically what we call a neoliberal. He believes that if you give more money to the people who already have the most, the wealth will trickle down. That's what neoliberalism really means. That's what trickle-down theory is. And, you know, big business is multinational corporations are doing great. Morrison certainly isn't proposing to tax them anymore. High-wealth individuals in Australia are doing great. Morrison has been giving them tax cuts. I mean, that's genuinely what he believes. Mm. You take care of rich people and then everything else will be fine. Well, at the other end, things are not fine. And the where that becomes politically very difficult in a country with universal enfranchisement where everybody votes is that the middle, who typically are those who determine the outcome of elections, are the ones being squeezed. The ACTU did a paper saying that the average worker is $2,000, $2,000 a year worse off this year than they were last year. Last year they were $800 worse off than they were the year before. And, and can I just say on that, I don't know, uh, Stephen, if you saw the debate with Frydenberg and Chalmers today, Frydenberg admitted that wages have gone backwards. I think he only admitted to $800 but tried to make up, you know, oh, well, we've given this tax cut and this rebate and so actually people are better off. But they admitted through Matthias Cormann, the former finance minister, now having a lovely time at the OECD, um, that wage suppression was deliberately liberal strategy. And it is because one of the ways you make rich people richer is you put in like economic policies that suppress wages. Mm. So they don't have to spend as much of their ludicrous wealth on actually paying the people who create the wealth for them. And the issue we have now is I look at somewhere like where my mother is living in the seat of Cook, which is Scott Morrison's seat. You know, this is a seat where, you know, this used to be sort of the lower end of suburbia. It was on the beach back in the days before rust-proof paint, you know, so it was a cheap place to live. You've got your post-war home and the rest of it. The community there is very much, you know, one of the reasons why Cook has a Liberal Party identity. It's all very small businessy, sort of aspirational, a, a leisure class, you know, everybody's mm. got an outdoor outboard motor and likes the river and the national park and the beach. That's why people live there. Now, if you're taking $2,000 out of each average worker, and of course, we now live in two-job households, it's $4,000 out of your partnered family 
out of their household budget. In 2022. In 2022. So what are you cutting in Cork? Are you cutting the amount of money that you're spending on your leisure activities? Are you going to cut on your kid's sport or their desire to learn a musical instrument, join one of the local bands? In $4,000, that's a pet. Like that's, you know, various forms of care. If you have elderly parents who you're caring for in that seat, I mean, you might be doing all right. You might be doing well. But this is a huge problem. And of course, the flow on is always to small business. Because if you take money out of the pay packets of workers, they're not spending it at small businesses. Your customer base contracts. And I think that's a very dangerous place for Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg, and the rest of them to be in. And they have no one to blame but themselves. And Stephen, you know, traditionally, the kind of thought process is the the economy is the liberals' territory, right? But we, you know, as Van said, this is these are the stats that have been coming through uh, paint a pretty damning picture of the liberals' economic management, and we're starting to see. I saw some Guardian figures that suggested that actually, you know, cost of living is you know the number one issue. And that Labor's now leading by 10 points over the coalition on who's best placed to deal with cost of living. This is, this is not the usual kind of federal framework, is it? No, not at all. I mean, at a state or federal level, um, you know, when your opponent wants to frame up a message around the economy, we try and frame it up as jobs. And when your opponent wants to frame up the message around cost of living, we want to uh, frame it up around uh, wages and wage growth. And it's amazing that the stat you just mentioned there about the approvals for Labor on the issue when you ask them about cost of living, that they're coming back and saying Labor are more trusted in it. That is a great number for us and it's something that we should drive home because could you imagine uh, a, a political campaign where we as Labor were getting hit on health or education by the Tories? That's our turf and we're losing on that. You'd be going, okay, we're in trouble here. We really need to address this. So the fact that we're actually making inroads on the Tories on some of the frames that normally are their territory is is a is a positive sign for Labor um, going into the final three weeks of the campaign. Oh, but we're just seeing everything through a political lens. That's what the <laughs> Prime Minister says. Not everything is political. That. You know, vote for me because I'm a great economic manager, but the economy is not political. It's a really interesting message to hear from the Prime Minister at this point when all of the messaging has been, we're such great economic managers now, everything's a bin fire, but it's somehow not my job. Yeah, it was remarkable. And uh, I think Friendly Geordies went back and dug up some file footage of um, Morrison, uh, a lot younger and a um, lot darker, more hair, um, making a, a speech in Parliament to that effect, um, eating his own words. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just – and it's bearing out in the polls as well, the published polls, is that people have moved off Morrison. They're not necessarily come to Labor just yet, so they're sitting there thinking about it. Um, but they've definitely gone off him and that provides us an opportunity to just to make sure that those those who are listed at the moment is sort of either saying undecided or other uh, in these final three weeks break for Labor to make sure we get over the line of those critical marginal seats. And it is, it is interesting too because, the you know, as you say, if if we were getting hammered on health and education, we'd be very worried. We'd be in topsy-turvy land. But, but you know, not only are we now winning on cost of living, the, the numbers that are coming through, you know, there's an 18-point lead to Labor on health, health, welfare, public services, job security. You've got, a, you know, Labor's got a nine-point lead there. On the climate crisis, I mean, Labor's got a 19-point 
lead on who you think is better placed. Now, these numbers are still not yet in majority. So it goes to your point, Stephen, that people have clearly gone off the coalition. You know, their, their numbers are so low as, you know, sort of one in five people, if they're lucky, kind of think they could handle those issues. But Labor's still, you know, only getting sort of two out of five, not quite getting a majority. So there's still work to be done in terms of convincing people that not only is Labor better than the coalition, but Labor's actually capable of, of delivering on those issues too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we've seen that in previous elections as well. Hell, even when we've come from a position of being in government, I mean, our experience in 2018 at the Victorian State Campaign, uh, when we were looking at our daily track poll, there were one or two seats, in fact, uh, local seats for you guys in Ballarat, uh, in which the Labor primary compared to the primary that was at the election four years previously uh, was around the same number, and that's a good number. But we were seeing the uh, the Liberal primary dive and then the other shoot up. This track poll had this sort of other mm. sitting somewhere in between, a number that shouldn't normally like 20 23% or something. And we looked at that and went, that's interesting. Why is that doing that? And if that other breaks for the Tories, then – uh, they may they may get over Labor at, um, come over the top at, on election day. So we were a little bit worried about that. And one of the things we sort of thought about was why is that happening? And luckily some people in the room actually were from Ballarat, natives of Ballarat, and said, we're running two brand new candidates. Yeah. Ballarat people vote for people they know, whether they're you know blue or red. We've just been lucky over the last sort of generation that they've been Labor people, but they tend to just like to settle on someone and they've got two new people and they're having a look at them and saying, well, you know, who are you? Why am I going to give you my vote, my, you know, most sacred uh, democratic value? Um, and so we had to then spend the next three weeks making sure that people got to know them as best as we possibly can through the mechanisms of a campaign. And sure enough, on election day, they, they, those, both those seats were, were held by Labor. So you blow that out to a, a larger picture across the country right now. That's what's happening. There's a lot of people in those marginal battleground seats right now are taking a, they've heard enough of Scott Morrison and they've gone, you know what, mate, we gave you a crack three years ago, but we're not going to do that just yet again, but we're going to go try the uh, the other bloke. We're going to have a look at him and see what we think. So in these next three weeks, we're going to start to see data that will tell us whether or not those voters, uh, those undecided or persuadable voters are now starting to make a shift and vote for Labor because on Monday, people are going to start to pre-poll. And when they start to pre-poll, they're going to start to get phone calls from pollsters who have asked them you know, on election day or you know, when you go to vote, how will you vote? They'll start telling the truth and say, well, I've already voted and this is who I voted for. So well, what we want to do is we want to watch that other statistic and that undecided statistic and that number will slowly fall, but we want to see where it goes. Is it going onto the blue pile or the red pile? And hopefully, uh, God willing, it goes onto the, uh, the red pile. I've spoken before about how, I mean, I spoke in this show a little earlier about disinformation and the real risk of disinformation campaigning. And I just want everyone who's listening to this to be on the lookout for it because we're in a, in a danger zone is, I mean, I know for a fact that people are off Scott Morrison and certainly in the contact I've had with, you know, traditional liberal voters mm. who will still vote liberal because culturally they are liberals, but who d- like despise hold him. hold their nose. And yeah, vote. hold their nose and, and vote for the blue team, which is something that I haven't, certainly I didn't encounter with Turnbull and didn't even encounter with Abbott in mm. those particular communities. But there is this sense that, 
that, you know, Morrison is not the leader they want. And I think in those, in those votes that are gettable, gettable for Labor, there's certainly a disdain for Morrison. That's a huge part of it. And this creates a disinformation window. This is the opportunity for, you know, the Liberal campaign or those associated with it or those perhaps like our friend Clive Palmer, who has rather a lot to gain for, from the Liberals being re-elected, um, to resource the kind of disinformation campaigning that will say literally anything about Albanese to try and uh, push preference. Like people may vote mm. um, Palmer, they may vote One Nation, they may vote, you know, the teacups in my underpants party um, or whoever is running and, to be fair, you know, teacups in my underpants party. I mean, they have a very broad platform. Who knows? Yeah. But the the idea is to hit uh, hit those mythologies and those fears around Labor speak to an echo that non-traditional Labor voters are receptible to with just outright lies that are pushed untraceably through social media. And that really worries me because, because of the last election and because of the intensity that we saw around absolute fact-free character assassination that went on online. So is there, there's really then a need for Labor, Labor supporters, people who, you know, want an Albanese government to, to as, as I think you've said, Stephen, focus in on those core issues, those core issues around job security, better wages, uh, fee-free TAFE, the things that we know resonate with communities that bring down cost of living, you know, improvements in childcare, improvements in aged care, the NDIS. Uh, so, you know, does that do enough to counterbalance what could become quite a nasty, dirty, disinformation-layered uh, campaign? Can we can we rely on that alone, that the, the strength of what we're offering will counteract that? I think in some ways we kind of have to because Labor have always been required to amass a bigger pool of votes than what the coalition have had to do. Normally, I mean, I know that we've won on federal elections with a primary that's been lower than 40%, uh, but that's kind of the number we want to be in. And the Tories can get away with it because they're in a broader coalition and also they have these, to Van's point, basically classic NUS feeder tickets really um, in One Nation and uh, Palmer. Um, it sort of harks back to, I'm just thinking about some of the better, better feeder tickets we ran at student campus elections. NU, uh, chair wrestlers for NUS was probably one of my favourites. Uh, I think I've mentioned chair wrestlers for <laughs> NUS on this show before. It was extraordinary. And Robert, if you're listening, it was your finest moment. <laughs> It truly was, you know, and I wish we had a camera and I could have filmed it because he basically walked out in the middle of the Agora with a balaclava <laughs> on while everyone was having their lunch and then just started to wrestle a lecture chair to the ground and eventually it sort of broke. And then people kind of clapped a little bit and then we all ran around handing out how to vote cards and it got 12 votes and that was enough to get one of our people over. So, you know, Robert, you're a hero and you're a patriot. But anyway, so we want to... Um, we want to, democracy, you know, democracy in all its glory. <laughs> Just take me back. Um, I'd like we, to say uh, I did none of that at the University of Wollongong, which I ran like a feminist gulag, although all the girls from the Women's Collective did march down to engineering and say, if you vote for us, girls will speak to you. <laughs> There you go. See, I was lower. I mean, they'll all be feminist, but we'll speak to you. I think it's safe to say you both have very lowbrow student political experiences, unlike myself. <laughs> I just sort of work out how low we can go because then a couple years later, myself and uh, Nick Gregory ran uh, Spice Boys and just absolutely cleaned up. Um, <laughs> I don't know how this happened. Anyway. 
Um, didn't actually have any policies either. Um, I literally <laughs> occupied my chancery to stop fees. But thank you, Stephen. <laughs> but it, it does go to the point, though, right, about about that there are feeder tickets out there. They exist at every level of politics. And on campus they're funny, and but in grown-up politics they are terrifying. yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what Labor, you're right though, Ben, Labor has really got to focus on its central core messages. And I sort of looking at some of the ads that have been, the positive ads that Labor's been putting out, they're really honing in on these sort of four or five key messages, making more things at home. So, you know, investment in, in, in infrastructure, which creates more jobs, cheaper childcare, reducing uh, power bills, uh, fee-free TAFE, so builds more, more into that kind of um, skilling up Australian uh, workers to get great uh, um Great jobs in back in at home here in Australia, and also strengthening Medicare. So that's that health message as well. And I think if Labor just keep on plugging that away, that they will eventually be able to pick up enough votes where needed to ensure that we can hold off on uh, on uh, the concern that you're raising, which is people have gone off Morrison, but they're not prepared to vote for the Labor team. So they'll take the the United Palmer had a vote, or they'll take the One Nation had a vote. But if you look at where that how to vote goes, yeah. those preferences are going to go back to the Liberals. So we just we need to get those number ones. We need we don't want people to uh, flirt with these minor right wing crazy parties, uh, but actually give a primary vote to the Labor candidate. And look, I always say it because uh, I can. It's you know vote one Labor and put the Liberals last. If you do that, and then you number whatever else you like in whatever order you like, people always say, "Oh, but Ben, there are like there's a genuine Nazi running." It's like, yeah, but the genuine Nazi party is not going to win a majority. Uh, they're unlikely to win a seat. And if you vote. For and if you vote their how to vote card of Clive Palmer, as you say, Stephen, you end up actually funneling a vote because of the way preferential voting works. You end up funneling a vote to the LNP. And quite honestly, when people like, oh yeah, but you know we've got a we've got a preference and and put you know the outright you know fascist scumbag last, and it's like yeah, I mean ideologically I agree with that. Fascists are the bigger threat. But George Christensen was a member of the Parliamentary Liberal Party when he was going to fascist events yeah. and had was bringing those politics into the caucus room of the government. You know, there are numerous uh, senators and members of parliament who've been implicated in spreading crazy far-right anti-vax material, Who and these are Liberal uh, slash National Party members mm. of a major party who are part of the government, who are in the caucus room deciding policy, who share the politics of a, a lot of the loons anyway. And who is the bigger risk? The minor party far-right nutcase who can't get elected or the major party far-right nutcase from the Liberal National Party who can and become part of a government? Yeah, I think it boils down to if you put one in the box next to a Labor candidate and you put the Liberal person last, then you're guaranteeing that vote goes to a Labor candidate. And guaranteeing it doesn't go to a Nazi because there aren't actually any Nazis in the Labor Party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think... How wonderfully comforting is that? <laughs> I think, Stephen, as a former Assistant Secretary of the Labor Party, you can vouch for that, can't you? Absolutely. We are Nazi-free. <laughs> Fantastic. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Labor, 100% Nazi-free. Um, look, you know, this is a fascinating discussion. I think... The, the reality of this election is that it is close. It is going to be fought state by state, seat by seat. Um, you know, it's good. I think 
you know, that Morrison has turned off the population or population has turned off from Morrison, but there's still work to be done in terms of getting those votes into a Labor government so that we can form government and deliver on some of those issues, those cost of living issues, wage uh, wage increases, job security, fee-free TAFE, Medicare, NDIS, aged care. I mean, all the big reforms come from Labor. Like superannuation, Medicare, this is this is such a nation uh, built. Hello, the preservation of Antarctica, the largest single piece of environmental protection and preservation um, activism in the history of the world. The PBS, all these things, so many things. We don't have time to list them all. And look, I want to end on a positive story. We like to end on a positive story, Stephen, if you'll indulge us. it's We always like to say there's a good news story everywhere at any time. And this one I think is particularly appropriate because it relates to a positive environmental story that if we get a Labor government will actually impact the lives of working people in this country in an incredibly positive way. Van, Labor's powering Australia policy. Yeah, so I um, am really thrilled with the stuff that I've seen coming from um, the Labor's various environmental and climate action announcements. I think Chris Bowen has been excellent in this portfolio um, because, you know, because of his background as shadow treasurer, there's an economic case for climate action that needs to be made. And I think it's pretty powerful what they're doing. Um, Empowering Australia is about a a suite of um, integrated and intersectional climate action policies, specifically around energy and job creation. And their latest announcement, they've they've modelled Powering Australia to deliver, and this just brings joy to my heart, 604,000 jobs right? Jobs in climate action. This is the kind of just transition that we've been, uh, people like you and I, who are um, environmentalist, democratic socialists who are like, you know, climate change is an opportunity for job creation, creating opportunities in the economy for people. Um, and the the best part of this policy, and I say this is someone from, um, you know, Wollongong where I spent so many years, a place absolutely dear to my heart, but a place that has been saddled with horrific problems with unemployment and youth unemployment for decades. Five out of every six of those jobs in that modelling behind Powering Australia will go to the regions. And it's an opportunity for investment in jobs and all of the economic outcomes that come with that to really get regional economies moving and moving in the direction of climate action. And that just, that's, that's the icing on the cake for me as the little environmentalist in the corner, let me tell you. Well, I think that's fantastic news. Look, you know, I've really enjoyed this cross pod with you, Stephen, Van. You know, it's always delightful to be with you. I mean, we are we, we are in a domestic partnership, Ben. One would hope so. That's Stephen, right. we're not in a domestic partnership, but it is wonderful uh, to have our our socially democratic friends uh, join in the week on Wednesday. Hilarity. Comrades, it's been fantastic. I've loved every minute of it and I've also appreciated a bit of a walk down memory lane as well and I just want to shout out to uh, um, both of you guys are doing a fantastic job uh, with your podcast. Oh, thanks. Um, I think uh, the, the, the two shows are probably the only uh, beacons of hope in the podcast world that are actually openly having a, a, a robust conversation about um, about the importance of, of, of labour and, and unions and the, and the labour movement 
And uh, so it's just been a wonderful opportunity to be a part of uh, your family uh, today. You will always be part of my family, Stephen. And just to give everybody some context, in student politics, Stephen and I fought one another bitterly, absolutely bitterly. But, you know, it's that interrogation of ideas. If you're all playing for the same team more broadly, that actually means that you, you get policy that's thought out and good and that tussle is actually really important. You know, my friendship with you has made me a more comprehensive political thinker. You know, you come from a, a different perspective within the same set of values and I really appreciate that. You know, we don't need to be frightened of having political conversations in this country and we shouldn't be frightened of having them on the left around the things that are most important to us. Couldn't agree more. And Stephen, can I just say a big shout out to you and the work you're doing with Socially Democratic and more broadly with Dunn Street. And your interview with Dan Andrews, I think, is an absolute classic. It is. It's absolutely fantastic. And people who are listening to this, if you're listening from the week on Wednesday audience and you haven't tuned into that, do go and check that out because uh, it's a real insight into, you know, one of the most popular premiers uh, in the country. Ever. Possibly ever. Uh, Dan Andrews. And, of course, Stephen, uh, your performance on that uh, podcast was remarkable as well. I'm going to draw a line under this. Uh, this has been The Week on Wednesday with Socially Democratic. Stephen Donnelly, thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, if you're uh, listening, to like, share, comment, uh, talk to your friends, join your union. Uh, you can also listen to the uh, the weekend wrap on Sunday uh, and there'll be lots and lots of opportunity to get involved in your election uh, campaign, in your seat, wherever you are, right around the country. Of course, we end the show by giving a huge shout out to all of our supporters from Buy Me A Coffee. That's www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Our cadre who are contributing $20 a month at Jane Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter For Me, Hanai Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, No Relation, Christine Cole, Richard Sands, Bracket I Am Not On Twitter, Glenn Robbie, uh, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atlee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atlee Ann Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Cadigal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Alan Rollins, Louise Watson, slash at Red, White and Blue Lou. And of course, our Extending the Reach supporters who are giving $10 a month. Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Galva, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hanneman, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckart, Graham Oxley, Beck underscore Cody, Tracy Lucas, Blinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trina, Amy Fawcett, Not On Twitter, Sarah, Bo Sullivan, Eileen and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Pat OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizard Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Bumgart, at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Masrita at Carradale 68 Frank Nye Erica Pazuti Claire Joe Lupino Steph Rachel Fitzpatrick Kerry Arthur Pauline Bate and of course as always a huge thank you to everyone who's chipping in a buck a week with the buck a week supporters as well so don't forget to check out buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday to show your support and help us share the word even further to even more people don't forget to check out the Weekend Wrap on Sunday, and Van and Francis Leach with the Australian Union's debate coverage Sunday night. Of course, don't forget to listen to Social Democratic with our good friend Stephen Donnelly and so much to him for joining us on today's episode. Until then, bye.